lot of the decisions that uh, that were made in this administration are very aggressive decisions, all aiming at preventing the uh, financial system from uh, from cratering. You hold your head up to the sky. You say, "What kind of?" Hi, and welcome to NPR's Planet Money. I'm David Kestenbaum in Washington, D.C. And in New York, I'm Laura Conaway. This is Monday, January 12th. It's about 3.15 p.m. Today, we're going to jump into the peer-to-peer lending pool. That's right. We're going to tell you how to get money from your friends, sort of. Uh, But first, we have our Planet Money indicator. The number for today, $350 billion. That is uh, President Bush is going to ask Congress for the second part of the original $700 billion bailout, the TARP, Troubled Asset Relief Program, which the name doesn't make any sense anymore because they're not actually buying the troubled assets. Although you never know, they might just up and do it. I don't know. You may. We got a new president. That's true. We got a new president, and the outgoing president says that the new president, president President-elect Barack Obama, requested that... The outgoing president asked Congress for the money, and apparently the idea is to get both administrations on record asking lawmakers for the money. One difference this time is that there may be more strings attached to the money when uh, the Treasury Department gets it because Congress has felt like it didn't attach enough strings the first time around. One of the things they're likely to ask for is increased oversight on how the money is spent, and Congressman Barney Frank has been saying uh, not enough is being done to help the homeowners, and he wants $40 billion of it earmarked to help prevent uh, preventable foreclosures. I still like the day on our podcast that Representative Frank yelled at you, David. That was Yeah, as one of our co- listeners commented, I got spanked, he said. <laughs> <laughs> All right. David, last week I talked to someone from a place where the economy is almost unimaginably tough in the U.S. This is that woman who found out all of a sudden that her employer had oddly stopped buying coffee for the office kitchen. Yeah, which is, she says, always a bad sign. Her name is Terry Weiss. She lives in Dayton, Ohio, and I blogged her story last week. Terry worked as a proofreader for a textbook company, and just before New Year, she sent me a series of Twitter messages. The first one read, Found out while I was off, my company quit paying coffee service, so they quit delivering. Brought my own coffee to brew today. Okay, fine, right? It turns out that was just the beginning of things. This is how it went down. I was literally standing in my boss's office, and we were talking about, huh, wonder if we should go buy our own coffee maker so we can make coffee. Wonder if we should, you know, everybody chip in so we can have coffee at work. And somebody said, ran by, did you see the email? We're like, what? She opened her email, and it said that the entire printing services division of my company uh, was shut down, and that was in Tennessee. And we looked at each other, and uh, I said, well, that's horrible. Maybe that makes our division, creative services, a little safer. And she said, it probably does. Bing! And she got another email, and it said, we were terminated. And that was it. So what will happen to you now? Well, you smile a lot. (laughs) And uh, you try to... I'm shutting my door so the kids can't hear me. I mean, I will probably lose my house. I will probably have to move. There are no jobs 
in educational publishing around here. Um, Columbus, Ohio is probably the closest thing, possibly Cincinnati. I've sent my resume a million places. Um, I don't know. I mean, I've gotten offers from two family members that we can come and live with them. That's that, amazing. That, I mean, that's how bad it is here. I live in a upscale suburb, and if you go down the main street right now, there's at least two signs saying that there's going to be an auction held for property because it never sold. The house next door has been on the market for probably nine months, and it's much nicer than mine. So I don't, I don't know. Maybe the bank, because my mortgage is through a bank, maybe they'll be really flexible because there's there's no hope they're going to sell it to anybody. Nobody's buying anything here. I saw that AK Steel, which is a a big local company, that they're going to lay off more people. You know, GM just closed. It's it's very scary, and people my mother's age don't even know what to say. David, I looked it up, and Ohio has been running an unemployment rate of over 7% since June. And they're at 7.3 now. Wow, so that, that's above the national average, actually. Yeah, and I think it's sort of starting to take a toll because it's been that high for so long. Terry talked about feeling like, you know, there really isn't another place in her area to get a job in educational publishing, so she's starting to get offers of help from her family. And that brings us to our main topic for today, how to get money from your friends and family. Or really, it's it's how do you borrow money, right, from uh, not from a bank, but from another person like like you. Economists call this idea peer-to-peer lending. It's actually very old. I mean, you can imagine when there weren't a lot of banks, people in one town would just lend money to a guy down the street who wanted to you know, open up a store or something. That's where you got money. Last week, our colleague Adam Davidson sat down with Clay Shirky. Clay Shirky is one of these new media types. He's a professor at New York University, and he's the author of this book called Here Comes Everybody. Basically, it's a book about the Internet economy, about the ways ordinary folks work together to I think really to set up their own worlds and sort of organizations and stuff. And he talked about this idea of peer-to-peer lending and how, for a little while at least, it took off in the United States on the Internet through a website called Prosper.com. The idea behind Prosper, if I'm a small business owner, I go up and I say, oh, I need a new pizza oven. It's going to cost me 15 grand. Uh, I'd like to borrow that. Will anybody lend me the money? I'll pay you back. And then... Other people, just regular people with credit cards, will log in and say, I'll lend you 500 and only at this interest rate. And then if enough people will pool together enough money at an attractive enough interest rate, buyer and seller converge. And so it really is an open market for uh, peer-to-peer, you know, from, from me to you kind of lending. And one of the fascinating things about it, when you go list yourself on Prosper, you also have to list not just, I have a pizza restaurant, I want a new oven, but you also have to list, here's my annual budget, not just for my business, but for my family. I drive this kind of car. I spend that much on entertainment. People will go in and say, you know what? I think you're spending too much going out to the movies. If you're really a small business owner, you ought to focus a little bit. So it's a completely different model from lending. And the SEC just shut it down. And they shut it down on the rationale that because the securitization, the, the, the lending against you know, the, the, the future profits of this business, that that wouldn't have happened if Prosper hadn't been in place. Therefore, Prosper was subject to the full weight of SEC regulation. So what you're saying, if I can get this straight, like um, 
Goldman Sachs, one of the one of the investment banks left. <laughs> the, right. If they call me, not up, gone yet. I not gone yet. You're right. If they call me up and say, "Hey, we have this product we want to sell you, whatever it is, a financial instrument." Um, they have to follow a whole bunch of rules that the SEC lays out. They have to be registered in some way. They have to have a prospectus that meets all these legal requirements. They have re- responsibilities, a lot of ways. So, so what the SEC said to Prosper is, you're kind of like Goldman Sachs. You're selling a product, even though Prosper's idea was, no, no, we're just a meeting place. Right. We're not selling nothing other than a place to meet. So, so Prosper says we're running exact a, a, a meeting place, a, a coordinating layer. We're just bringing buyer and seller together. To which the Securities Exchange Commission said, if if the deal wouldn't have happened without you there, then we don't care about the ways in which you're different from Goldman because we think that from our point of view, you follow under our regulations. But since you don't look anything like a bank, we're shutting you down. So Prosper says, we're not taking any new new clients. We're not taking any new loans. We're going to try and work this out. If if you were telling me this two years ago, I'm pretty sure I would have said something like, but this is ridiculous. Sophisticated investment banks and Wall Street firms have such sophisticated models for assessing risk and figuring out exactly how much different kinds of loans um, – what interest rate would be appropriate for them, what terms would be appropriate for them, and the competitive pressure between those different firms will keep the the fees and costs low enough that that the borrower won't be uh, cheated. And, and I would have said the system doesn't need this peer-to-peer lending, that the peer-to-peer lending is almost guaranteed to be flawed in some way because it's not as sophisticated. I'm realizing that would have been a really embarrassing thing <laughs> to have on tape today because we see that those sophisticated models are, are problematic. But that doesn't necessarily imply that peer-to-peer lending is, is, is a great idea. I've spent time in the Middle East where um, you know there are really ancient tribal systems yes. that, that, that enforce social capital in very strict ways. I mean, right. you, get, right. you get killed, your parents get killed, your family right. gets killed right. if you, if you right. violate them. Right. It is harder for me to picture it working in the U.S. Uh, how does social capital work outside of, you know, an yeah, Amish yeah. system or an Iraqi tribal well, system? So this, this, is, this is what I think made Prosper not just, uh, let's take that model and move it over, but actually a real, a real sort of innovative system, which is that in the U.S. and especially in urban areas like we live in, uh, there's a distinction between our social networks and our physical network. What I think Prosper has understood is that the loss of social capital, the loss of face in reneging on uh, friends or on people who you've gotten to know or have done you a good turn, can be considerable even at an enormous distance, right? If you were to betray a friend who happened to live in Seattle, it would ripple through your social network anyway, right? Because News travels fast and it's not bound by – gossip is not bound by geography anymore. And so what I think Prosper said is we don't have to have co-location as with uh, Koreans in southern Southern California, the Amish in in, in, in western Pennsylvania. We can in fact have social capital enforced at a distance by moving this onto the web and by letting people uh, see one another, see into one another's lives and critically – by letting them both syndicate the risk, Prosper was very careful about saying, do not lend one person all the money they need. Do not put all your money in one 
uh, and do not put all your money on lending to one person. So you should both syndicate what you're lending and make sure that other people who are receiving yeah, money. It's just like mortgage-backed securities. It's except that it's not cut into tranches. The the full risk is borne. You could you could see the person who's creating the risk for you, which you couldn't do in the mortgage-backed securities tranche resecuritization world. And that kind of um, – you have to make scare quotes, but that kind of line of sight visibility of the risk, like that guy building the pizza oven in Akron, Ohio, like that's the guy who's either going to make me 12 percent interest or he's going to blow up my capital. And I understand the difference. The other thing that I think Prosper recognized is that – And by the way, sorry, one of the things Alex Bloomberg and I tried to do with our, our various reporting on mortgage-backed securities was find an investor and connect that person with an <laughs> actual homeowner – and you can't do it. You cannot do it. But the other thing Prosper's done to, to your question about sort of hybridization of physical and virtual is they've recognized that the credit card companies actually have a really good apparatus for uh, both managing interest and for collecting on debts. So in, in, in an intuition similar to the intuition PayPal, the online payment service had several years ago, by routing a little part of this peer-to-peer lending through the existing consumer financial system, not investment financial system, both the threat and likelihood of collecting on some part of your money through collection agencies is much higher than it would be otherwise. And that that also backstops the risk in ways that I think the SEC didn't really pay attention to or care about because – it was when the SEC looked at Prosper. It was so familiar on one hand, and so strange the other that I think they just reflexively shut it down uh, because it just didn't look right to them. And I, th- I, I think, I hope, in any case, that someone uh, in the next administration is going to revisit that and say, you know, social capital is, is is potentially too valuable a tool for us to just set aside like this. So, do you think? I mean. Can this be scalable? Will we reach a point where much of the borrowing and lending in America is socially, not through banks? And depends on what you mean by scalable. No, I don't think I don't think we'll ever reach a point where where uh, much, even most of it, is not through banks measured in dollar terms. Right? A, a very large loans are always going to be done. Uh, with very large companies dealing with one another. If you need $100 million, you're not going to get it syndicating it across, uh, across people's credit cards. It may, however, be the case, particularly if we're heading into a, a, an L-shaped recession rather than a V-shaped recession. Meaning a recession that does not recover quickly. That just right. Stays... Just, just, it just sets a new normal, as, yeah. as happened in Japan's sort of lost decade, where things just stayed bad, that the, the, the trillions that just went away don't come back for a long time or at any particular speed. Uh, it may be the case that a high number of the loans made, albeit for low dollar amounts, are made using social capital as a replacement for otherwise cripplingly high interest rates or indeed banks not being willing to loan at all. And you see it you see it in the venture capital world already a huge number uh, of startup companies are are designing their their plans and relying much more on what's called friends and family money for the early stage because they just have a sense that they can't go out and raise money from the venture capitalists. And I think that model may it's certainly possible that it could move into the mainstream, but it would require the SEC to be willing to tolerate innovation, uh, not innovation within the status quo, but rather a th- innovation that is a threat to the status quo of the banking system as, as we've known it for the last 20 years. Hey, Laura. Yeah? Can I borrow 20 bucks? You should ask Clay Shirky. Okay. 
Seriously, thanks to Adam Davidson and Clay Shirky for that conversation. We'll link to Shirky's blog and his book, Here Comes Everybody, on our blog, npr.org slash money. So, David, we have some business to attend to. We do. Here goes. You ready? Yep. Okay. I can do this. All right, folks, we here at Planet Money, we're a small team. We're actually a really small team. And we do radio, and we do the blog, and we do this podcast. We do stories for This American Life. We're talking about branching out into video. We love doing all that stuff. And we also spend some time reading your email, and we see all of you out there saying that you depend on this daily podcast. But also, could we please do some longer stories that explain everything? explain everything better and more and longer and more fun and all that. And we hear you, and uh, we need to make room for that to happen. So we decided we're going to try switching from five days of podcasting a week to three days a week. That's right. We're going to podcast on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. And the goal is to get the podcast up a little earlier in the day than we have been, so you can have it for your commute home in the evening. And especially on Friday, we're going to try to get that sucker up probably around 2 o'clock in the afternoon Eastern. And we're going to use the rest of our time to blog more and to make more radio stories. We've already got one in the works for This American Life. Adam is actually really busy working on it right now as we record this. Right. We may not see Adam actually all week. He's so deep in the studio. So the bottom line, three days a week, Planet Money podcast, Monday, Wednesday, Friday, just like college. I'm Laura Conaway. And I'm David Kestenbaum. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.